from MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is out this week. So today we welcome Steve Grushy to the table. As a wildlife biologist with the conservation group Wildlife Mississippi, he's here to talk Mississippi wildlife, especially what's happening with the Black Belt Prairie in the northeast part of the state the conservation and restoration efforts, and the animals that benefit. And also, if you have a pet question, Dr. Major's always ready to help. Join the conversation this morning with your calls, 1-877-MPB-RING. It's 1-877-672-7464, or you can send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. You're listening to Creature Comforts from MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. It's the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Levy Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Sciences, out this week. So today we welcome Steve Grushy to the table. As a wildlife biologist with the conservation group Wildlife Mississippi, he's here to talk Mississippi wildlife, especially what's happening with the Black Belt Prairie in the northeastern part of the state. Conservation and restoration efforts there and animals that will benefit from it. Also, if you have a pet question, Dr. Major's ready to help. Give us a call this morning to join the conversation. The phone number is one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464, or you can email the show, animals at mpbonline.org. We always like to remind you that if you miss the show on Thursday, it repeats Saturday mornings at 6. So good morning. Hope that you're both doing well this morning. Good morning. Doing good morning. Good. Uh, Dr. Major, anything interesting going on at the clinic? Wow. There's always something interesting going on there. <laughs> it seems like there's been an uptick in uh, broken bones. Hmm fights, uh, this sort of thing. It, it always happens when things get out uh, and about during the spring. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, I believe we had the snake uh, uh, snake expert, uh, Terry Vandevender, on last week. Right. Uh, I've had two snake bites since then. <laughs> In fact, one was waiting on me when I got back from the show uh, last week, so... Uh, I think the water pushed some of the snakes mm-hmm. out and around. So be careful. Uh, main thing is to keep underbrush down and, and uh, places where snakes could <clears throat> go. And of course, they're going for a food source in most cases, which would be mice and rats, frogs, this sort of thing. So we had the snake guy on last week, and you had two snake bites, so I hope we're not having the bear expert on anytime soon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we, we might have a problem there. As I mentioned, our guest this morning, wildlife biologist Stephen Grushy. Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, now, my producer uh, Java told us or uh, told me that you drove in from Amory this morning and, and had uh, quite a lot to look at on the drive down. Tell us about some of the wildlife you saw on your drive here to Jackson today. Oh yeah, it was it was pretty enjoyable. I took the the Natchez Trace most of the way, and um, you know I saw plenty of as the sun was coming up. I saw plenty of turkeys and deer out. Uh, enjoying some of this spring weather we're having so it was a nice enjoyable drive 
And uh, from previous guests, I remember, you know, we think of turkeys as kind of maybe not so bright, but actually they're, they're quite uh, intelligent and, and really uh, fast uh, runners as well. Oh, yeah, they're pretty quick. Uh, I think um, most people who've hunted turkeys think they're, they're a lot smarter than people give them credit for. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are they doing this time of year? Was it they were just out? Is this mating season, or did you just see them in their normal uh, course of action, or what? Yeah, uh, things heat up pretty good for turkeys in the spring. They uh, they kind of begin their mating season uh, in early spring, and the 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 male turkeys, known as gobblers, they start gobbling and uh, trying to attract in the females, and uh, that's generally when the uh, the hunting season for turkeys in Mississippi is uh, March fifteenth to May first, and it kind of revolves around that that uh, high activity for turkeys um, during that time of the year. So tell us a little bit about your background. Um, well, I've always enjoyed wildlife in the outdoors, and uh, I went to Mississippi State University um, where I majored in forestry and wildlife management. Uh, graduated in 2008 and then again in 2010 with, uh, from Mississippi State with the forest economics uh, major for my master's. And... Um, Went straight into wildlife Mississippi from there, and it's been I've been there ever since. So, would you say if uh, if there's folks out there whose kids are, again have an interest like you did in wildlife and and the outdoors that uh, as they sort of matriculate uh, through college, that state would be for an in in house uh, option would be the one to recommend? Oh, I, I think so. Uh, they've got a really good uh, forestry and wildlife program there that's uh, it's been going strong ever since uh, before I was there, and it, it's continuing to to change with the the way people see things mm-hmm. in, in, in forestry and wildlife these days, so they're, they're keeping up with the times there. All right, and tell us a little bit about the work that you do with Wildlife Mississippi. Uh, well, I'm a wildlife biologist. Um, a lot of what I do, well, Wildlife Mississippi is, they're kind of habitat-focused uh, mm-hmm. rather than just being a single species. You know, they're a nonprofit conservation organization, but it's uh it's kind of state focused and it's through a variety of habitat ranges so i do a lot of uh a lot of wetlands work with uh you know bottomland hardwood forest restorations and um and they've got programs in south mississippi that do longleaf pine restoration and over in the delta they've got you know wetland reserve enhancement program projects and in northeast mississippi in my amory office we're actually located kind of in the middle of the black belt prairie so we started, uh, or Wildlife Mississippi started a Black Belt Prairie Restoration Initiative with uh, several other partners, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and Mississippi Department of Wildlife, Fishers and Parks back around, I think, 2003. And um, they do a lot of, we do a lot of prairie restoration work out of, out of the Amory office. Uh, but uh, it sounds like uh, maybe an office might be a, a place where you, you stop by occasionally. It sounds like there might be a lot of field work in your job. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's a there's a good bit of field work. Uh, those are those are most of the time the good days. Um, of course, there's always office work involved too. And I'd say uh, I think probably most wildlife biologists, it's surprising uh, coming out of school as you were as we were talking about earlier. But um, you probably spend a lot more than half your time in the office, even being a, a you know probably a field biologist. You, mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time at, at work there. 
you got to do what you got to do. And yeah. I guess that makes the, the time when you're out in the field and, and enjoying nature and, and wildlife uh, th- that much more special. Yeah, and you really appreciate the office in, uh, in August. That's... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I think we all appreciate indoor air conditioning when it gets hot in the summer in Mississippi. Uh, we've got some open phone lines, so if you have a wildlife question specifically about the Black Belt Prairie region of Mississippi for our guest, uh, you can give us a call. And Dr. Major's here ready to take some pet questions. Uh, the phone number to call to join in is one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. It's one 672 7464 You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. We do have a caller on the line, so we'll begin the show by going to D'Iberville. Lena has called in today. Good morning. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Good morning. I'm calling about my little Chewini, Jack, <laughs> who has a tiring cherry eyes. Uh, he's had the um, one eye where the doctor pushed down one of whatever they did, just pushed it down, and then reoccurring one um, one eye at a time. But lately, very recently, he's had both eyes pop out with the uh, red extended uh, tissue. Yes. Uh, basically, uh, dogs have what's called a third eyelid. Uh, mm-hmm. Official name for that is nicotating membrane. But the granular, the tissue, the lymphatic tissue underneath sometimes will swell and it'll pop out from under there and get trapped. So it gives the appearance of uh, red tissue and is commonly called a cherry eye. My suggestion, if this is recurring, uh, definitely need to have the, actually that tissue removed. Your vet can do that. It does require anesthetic and uh, it's fairly simple surgery. It's not life-threatening. As far as the condition, some dogs, uh, I've seen cherry eyes. People did not want to do anything about it, and it stayed like that for quite a while. But, but it, it can't. I, I think it started with my other bigger dog uh, groom his face. That's when it really started to uh, occur. Right. Well, it can be uh, probably aggravated by that. But talk to your vet. I would recommend having the, quote, surgery for the cherry eye done and that should eliminate the problem um, it won't recur. if it's done properly it won't recur you're right okay, okay. thank you doctor you're welcome Appreciate it. thanks for the call this morning uh, what is a chewini <laughs> well use your imagination <laughs> well all right i got chihuahua right and the Do- dachshund dachshund yes. okay <laughs> yes yes it's uh, that's, a, that's a cute name but yes there are there are chewinis out there and they they're quite cute Sometimes I wonder who who comes up with. Uh... It's it's open for your opinion as well. Uh, uh, putting the weenie first might be a problem there. Uh, weenie weenie wow wow maybe that's it could be. Uh, we got another caller on the line, so we invite uh, Kathleen from Osaka into the conversation. Good morning, Kathleen. Hi, Kevin. I have a little problem. All right. What I is noticed it? that I had a whole bunch of those little red Indian strawberries by my trash. Uh, they were growing around. I went out there to deal with it. And all of a sudden, I have two, two big vultures fly into the tree behind me. And they were at the top. And they didn't move. They kept coming down closer and closer. I tried squirting them with the hose, making noise. They wouldn't leave. I noticed yesterday they were in that area on the ground. Now, would they attack me or come after me if they thought I was stealing their supply of berries? 
and do world disease theories like that. Stephen, any any thoughts? Um, yeah, um, they most likely wouldn't ever attack uh, a person. Um, I don't think you're in any danger of that. Um, buzzards roosting around an area can create problems for people. Um, they can sometimes. I've heard they like to tear up tractor seats. <laughs> they get after the foam and um, they just uh, chew on those and can do a lot of damage. I'm not sure. I, most most birds are pretty opportunistic eaters. They would probably eat some berries. Of course, vultures are. Uh, they they eat um, carrion. Mm-hmm. Um, Roadkill. Roadkill, yeah, <laughs> and, uh, and other dead animals. So there could be an issue like that at your house. There may be. I, I, I looked around. There was nothing dead or that would entice them. But I remember the day before they were in that area, and I was wondering, they could be protecting their little private stash of berries. It's, <laughs> I, I, would I, I, would, I would say this. You said this was where you keep your trash? Uh-huh. Is that right? Just paper. Just paper. Okay. Nothing, well, well, the other thing you could do is just consider it an omen, and uh-huh. I would be careful. <laughs> uh, they're not. They're not going to attack you, though. I. Uh, I. I, I have. Wanted to be sure. I have. I have a vulture that nests in an old barn every year. I'd usually try to get out and see the babies. Uh, usually, there's one, maybe two. Uh, but they're not going to attack you, okay? They they would rather get away. Now, why they're sitting right there, I don't know. Oh, but yeah. uh, maybe they just like you. I don't know. But anyway. Well, isn't that uh, lovely? Okay. Thank you. Well, right. At least I'll, I'll, they might leave me alone enough to where I can call in again next week or something. Well, okay. <laughs> well, we're, we're in trouble if there's a flock there. If there's, <laughs> if there's over four or five, we, we have some problems. All right. Yeah, Take care. One to two, if it's bad, nothing more. I don't All right. know. All right, Kathleen, good to hear from you. Uh, thanks for the call. Uh, you know, Dr. Major is also now our resident comedian. I love the line about, uh, you know, when the vultures are hanging around your house, that you might want to go to the doctor, make sure everything is okay there. <laughs> I didn't mean it quite like that. <laughs> uh, we need to take a quick break. When we get back, we will continue visiting with our guest, Stephen Grushy. Uh, he's a wildlife biologist with, uh, um, I, I, I lost my train of thought here, Wildlife Mississippi. Sorry about that. And Dr. Major is here ready to take some pet questions. We'll be back with more of Creature Comforts right after this. steps to your front door mpb news covers the state like no one else our team of award-winning journalists keeps you informed on the news affecting your life mpb news online at mpbonline.org and on mpb think radio this is an mpb think radio podcast to hear previous shows visit mpbonline.org or download the mpb public radio app to listen on your iphone or android phone on demand Welcome back to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. And our guest today is wildlife biologist with Wildlife Mississippi, Stephen Grushy. So we're going to be talking about wildlife today. If you have a wildlife question, you can uh, give us a call. We're also specifically going to be talking about the Black Belt Prairie region of the state that Stephen does uh, some of his work in. And Dr. Major's here. So if you have a pet question, you can call in as well. A reminder of a phone number. It's one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. The phone number is one eight seven seven 
672-7464. You can email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Got another caller on the line. We're off to Laurel this time as we say good morning to Andrew. Hello, Andrew. Go ahead, please. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me on and uh, for answering my question. Got a pet question. Okay. Uh, we have a dog and uh, got him from the animal rescue here in Laurel. Great pet, but about two weeks ago, he had uh, an extremely swollen neck. So we took his collar off and uh, it was just seemed to be on one side. And, and we, we, we gave him a little Zyrtec after some advice from a friend, uh, just, just kind of like a regular dose that, that one of us would take. Uh, and uh, he got better immediately uh, through that day. And then about uh, three or four days later, the other side of his neck was swollen. And, uh, and then it went away on its own. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts about what that might be or, or whether we should take him into the vet now. Was the swelling soft or hard? It was relatively soft. Right. Occasionally we'll have salivary gland that uh, becomes enlarged, and it's usually quite, it's usually fairly soft, and they may uh, absorb and go back and forth. In other words, uh, what you just said, in other words, go away after a while. If it persists, I definitely would get get him in to see your vet. There are lymph nodes in that area as well, and usually they would be quite uh, firm or hard. So it sounds like it's possibly a salivary cyst uh, involved. Okay. okay. But if it persists, you need to get in to see your vet, certainly. Okay. Well, that'd be pretty good news then if that's the case, wouldn't it? As opposed to a tumor or, you know, a mass that would be bad, certainly. All right, Andrew, thanks for the call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with wildlife biologist from the group Wildlife Mississippi, Stephen Cruci. So, Stephen, we're going to be focusing on the area, uh, one of the areas that you work in, and that's the Black Belt Prairie region. It's in northeast Mississippi, but I believe it also, uh, does it extend into Alabama as well? Uh, yes, sir, it does. It, it starts at the northern reaches of Mississippi, and it uh, runs about, it's about a 300-mile stretch uh, down it makes a, a crescent shape that's kind of a that's it, it gets its name the black belt uh due to the the shape of the land formation and it runs through most of alabama almost to georgia historically it started in in tennessee and um there were approximately 350,000 acres through mississippi and alabama that were part of this prairie region and um it's to the point now where there's less than 1% of these these open prairies remaining on the landscape and i would imagine maybe human development uh, that sort of thing has shrunk the area yes sir for the for the most part it was a uh, farming and agriculture and uh, human development and forests um people are planting planting trees and and whenever uh you know european settlement came in uh these open areas were the first attractive areas to farm and to to settle and so I, I think, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but part of the work of Wildlife Mississippi would be to help um, protect the area that is still here and then possibly uh, expand uh, the, the, the region, the, the habitat. Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, the, that's one of our big goals. We've actually done close to um, over 11,000 acres in, in the past few years in, in prairie restoration and enhancement work, uh, mostly with private landowners. And... Um, it's interesting with the the prairie work we're able to work with a lot with farmers uh through farm bill programs and things like that where they can sometimes take out some of their their marginal land that's producing less uh less crop production 
and uh, put that into programs that are that are restoring native warm season grasses, which is one of the habitat types through the prairie that's really beneficial to wildlife. And uh, so we can kind of work together with that to um, not remove as much farming, but just the least productive part of the farm, part of the farms, and um, improve habitat at the same time. And I guess the the idea there is, uh, if you're a farmer and you kind of not pay attention to the marginal land, you're able to focus more of your attention on, on the better farming land, so it would seem like it would be more efficient for the farmers, but then it's also the benefit because we're reclaiming some of that habitat for the wildlife. Absolutely. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, we'll continue that discussion throughout the hour. we got another pet question on the line right now, so we go to Alice on the Gulf Coast. Good morning, Alice. Go ahead, please. Good morning. I wanted to ask about um, a reluctant kitty that we have. Um, he was abandoned in our neighborhood, and we noticed it and started feeding him. And he was very hesitant. But I've gradually been able to start petting him. But suddenly what he'll do when I'm petting him, he's very shy at first, but then he seems to enjoy it, starts purring. But then all of a sudden he'll turn around and he'll put his teeth on me. He doesn't bite down, but he puts his teeth on me. And it a little bit scared me at first. What does that mean? Well... We don't know the total history of this this cat, and uh, he's probably been abused and scared, this sort of thing. Always pet, uh, usually right over the shoulders. Don't pet on the uh, rear quarters, and don't pet right on the head, probably, would be good. This is a behavior, though, he's he's kind of, uh, I guess you would say that he's feral or semi-feral. Yeah, probably. Right. If you picked him up, he probably would either try to scratch you, bite you, or get away, right? Well, I did pick him up to board him once, and he peed on me. Right. So so it's one of those things that's going to be difficult to change his behavior. I mentioned uh-huh. where the best place usually to pet a cat like this. And when he's ready to get for you to stop, he's going to let you know. And that's kind of what he's doing. But it's uh, good. So it's, he basically means stop. Right. He hasn't bitten you. I wouldn't. No, he never I, right, right. I would be very careful with him, though. Has he been fixed or neutered? Yes, we got Good. him fixed because we thought that would be best for his injury. Right, right. And a lot of times, a cat like this has been on his own. He hasn't been socialized with other cats or with people. So what you're dealing with is a behavioral problem. But I believe that you've made advances with him, and that probably he's better now than than he than he was. So just be cautious, okay? Cautious and keep going. Okay, right. thank you. Thank you. All right, Alice, thanks for your call. Uh, just a quick disclaimer. Uh, my name is Farrell, but I am totally domesticated, <laughs> and I would not bite anybody that happened to be petting me. Uh, <laughs> but what are some of the things uh, when you have a cat? That, uh, they, there are, they do some things before they do something that drastic to let you know, sort of like, hey, this was good for now, but it's, it's, not, it's not fun anymore. Well, you know, a lot of cats will do exactly that same behavior, even cats that have been inside all their life. Uh, and sometimes they just get tired of being petted. I tend to pet a cat a little bit harder than most people. They seem to like it in most cases. When I say harder, just a vigorous petting. Uh, but usually, though, they will let you know if, if they're tired of that. I also mentioned not petting uh, toward the mm-hmm. last half of the cat. A lot of cats really don't like to be petted there. So they feel intimidated, I guess, when you do that. Most cats, the back of the head, uh, through the shoulders, that's the best place to pet them. But they usually will let you know. Yes, that, that, that's true. And, uh, yeah, my cat's the same way. Yeah, they they love the up front there, but the further right. the back you get, they, they do get a little bit nervous there, right. and they're not real fond of that. Right. 
I had a question for Stephen. Uh, are there any wildlife that are peculiar to the Black Belt area, any type of wildlife? Um, as far as peculiar, uh, that's that's one of the issues with uh, restoration on the on the Black Belt is a lot of times that's tied to a, a, an endangered species or something that's important. And there's actually kind of a lack of that in the Black Belt Prairie. Most of the species there are... Uh, they can kind of get along in other places. You, you think about the, you know, white-tailed deer. Um, There's really high population through Mississippi now. But um, the Black Belt Prairie is known for having large deer. Um, some of the other game species would be uh, bobwhite quail is a big one, and um, wild turkeys and, and even rabbits in some of the open prairie areas and and grasslands. The Black Belt is very. Uh, the soil is very. Uh, has a high concentration of lime. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, historically they're they're a really fertile soil. Um, from that's why they get their name, the Black Belt. There was a um, a thick layer of black soil over this this Demopolis chalk type mm-hmm. formation that you're referring to. And, and uh, unfortunately, those soils are pretty highly erodible. So uh, the intense farming practices that that took hold early on resulted in a lot of erosion and a loss of some of these fertile soils. So you do see a lot of those chalky soils in the prairie. Um, you can see those white rock outcrops almost sometimes. So you were talking a little bit earlier about uh, prairie restoration. How do you go about doing that? Is it maybe, say, a, a, a farm owner or a landowner, a farmer has made an agreement where he's going to let you uh, manage the, the marginal land, as you were talking about earlier. What, what, what do you do to try to get it back to uh, the habitat that might be good for wildlife? Um, well, the biggest thing is, is establishing these native warm season grasses that I was referring to earlier. And uh, typical prairie habitat, uh, native prairie habitat, would have a dominance of, of grasses like um, little blue stem and big blue stem, Indian grass. And these are kind of what they call bunch grasses. And they grow in a different way um, where they leave a lot of open ground um, where quail and small animals can use them for cover and they can also brood rear in them and nest and they can move around underneath the cover of these grasses and um that kind of the the current in pasture grasses and things like that with uh bahia grass and bermuda those grow really densely which is really good for feeding cattle because you have mostly grass no bare dirt but you're also um you're removing that that habitat, that uh, that cover component that, well, specifically quail and other wildlife utilize. So, the restoration process is basically removing these, you know, these non-native grasses. And in the case of cropland, um, it's a little easier than that because you don't have that that grass component, that non-native grass component that you'd have to remove for the most part. But typically, uh, application of of some type of herbicide that's appropriate and um, burning to clear the land and get good um, open soil where, if if necessary, you can plant the appropriate native warm-season grasses. And that's uh, That's got some uniqueness of its own. There's a, Often there's a special type of seed drill that plants these fluffy seeds that these native grasses have. Uh, regular grain drills aren't appropriate for doing that. Um, so there's multi-step processes, and the biggest component to maintaining the native warm season grasses is the implementation of prescribed fire. And um, historically, that's what kept these prairies open. Um, it was either natural occurrences from dry lightning strikes or 
Um, it's pretty. People are pretty sure that uh, Native Americans use prescribed fire to keep these places open. But but I would guess too. So it's not obviously an overnight thing. It's something that you once you establish and then it begins to grow. But also, I would imagine because these are native grasses, once you kind of let them go, that's they're going to flourish. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, that's the idea. But um, these do require some maintenance as far as uh, as a frequent disturbance every few years uh, to maintain this early successional habitat is what you would call it. Uh, maintaining these grasslands, keeping it from growing up in trees uh, and things like that, it, it does require. Every few years, some some type of maintenance, whether it's mowing or, um, you know, disking or, or fire. We need to take another break. When we get back, we'll continue our discussion. Our guest this morning is Stephen Grushy. He is a wildlife biologist with the conservation group Wildlife Mississippi. Dr. Major is here ready to take some pet questions as well. So if you'd like to join the conversation, just give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464 or email the show animals at mpbonline.org back with more after this Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Levy Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science, is out this week. But we do have a guest in studio today. We're visiting with Stephen Grushy, a wildlife biologist with the conservation group Wildlife Mississippi. We've been uh, taking some wildlife questions, talking specifically about the Black Belt Prairie region of Mississippi in the northeastern part of the state. Uh, Stephen does a lot of his work there. So if you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at one eight seven seven. MPB Ring. Our phone number is one 672 7464 Back to the phone lines we go. Lena has called in from the Gulf Coast again. Good morning, Lena. Thanks for calling in again. Thank you. Um, what about the feral hog problem? Do you have any of, any of that going on in, your, in this area, the Black Belt um, region? Yes, ma'am. Un- unfortunately, we do have a uh, pretty serious feral hog problem throughout the state. Um, I'm not... Uh, I'm not sure on it, but I don't think there are any counties left in the state that haven't seen wild hogs. Hmm. Yeah, it's quite a problem. Uh, it's widespread, and I you didn't mention it, but I just want to to point it out to the listening audience. All right, uh, thanks for calling in. So, um, what are what are some of the efforts that you can try to do to uh, control populations like that? Uh, well, trapping is by far the the most effective method for removing wild hogs, um, and especially corral trapping. Um, there's a method involved where you you uh, try to get some intel, hopefully with a game camera, and realize how many pigs are in a sounder, and they typically move in these sounder groups that might be three or four up to 12 or 15 pigs in a group, 
And if you can do your best effort to catch all those pigs in one trap at the same time and uh, not leave any uh, any educated bystanders that get away and uh, <laughs> inform the rest of the pig population to stay away from these traps, then uh, that's definitely the effective way to remove them. And then you re- relocate them somewhere. What do you do once you kind of round them up? Do Get rid of them. Yeah, you want to get rid of them. You don't want to. You don't want, <laughs> you don't to, want to push them off to somebody else. No, no. And the safest method is, is just to you know euthanize them. Okay. Um, hopefully by not touching them, not having to deal with them uh, direct contact. Of course, you always want to wear gloves when you're removing them from the trap and and all that kind of thing. But um, yeah, not moving them is actually illegal for the most part without a without a permit. Um, there's no good place. To put a pig, they're they're a non-native, <laughs> invasive species. So, and they get get to be quite large, I guess. Is that right? Yeah, some of them some of them do get pretty large. I think I've I've heard of, you know, three hundred pounders in the state, um, but most of the ones you see are, are typically less than a hundred pounds, um, from what I've seen. But yeah, some of the some of the males get big and dangerous. And I guess part of what they do is destruction of habitat wherever they go, I would imagine. Yeah, uh, they, they search for food by rooting around in the ground for, for bugs and insects. So they can, uh, they can really make a mess of, of roads and, and, you know, food plot areas, any, anything like that. They, they do a lot of damage sometimes. And we do some tree planting for um, habitat restoration work. And a lot of times they'll go through there and tear up all your freshly planted, planted trees. And uh, no one appreciates that. <laughs> Let's uh, head back to the phone lines. Off to Ocean Springs we go. Frank's called in today. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I have a question. You know, dogs and cats uh, make great pets, and they'll let you know when they they want to go to the bathroom. But what, is there any way of potty training a rabbit? Good question. Uh, actually, yes, there is. Uh, some people actually have rabbits as house pets. They're uh, great. And if you uh, go to, there's a house rabbit society or group, and you might check that out online. But most rabbits that I know that are house rabbits have been trained to the litter box, and uh, they can go to the litter box. The litter box. Yeah, yes. I kind of had a feeling that might. Right. And uh, it, it's, you know, and most people, we have quite a few people that do have rabbits as pets, and uh, they love them, and uh, they take care of them generally with the litter box. Yeah, they're very affectionate animals. You right. know, we had them when we were kids, but of course we had cages for them. Right. But, uh, they, they would. One one of the things I would encourage, if you have a rabbit in the house, definitely rabbit-proof the house. They love to chew on electrical cords, uh, this sort of thing. So. You have to think about it uh, even more so than with, say, a puppy. Okay. All right, Frank, uh, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. We're visiting today with wildlife biologist Stephen Grushy. We're talking about the Black Belt Prairie region of the northeast Mississippi uh, and some of the efforts there by uh, the uh, conservation group Wildlife Mississippi. Uh, if you have a question about uh, wildlife or a pet question, give us a call today at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one eight seven seven. 672-7464. Send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. 
You know, Stephen, we've talked with folks from Wildlife Mississippi. Part of the idea, and have you mentioned it earlier in the show, is 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 working with the private landowners. Uh, and and from what I understand, that usually you're getting a lot of good cooperation. Uh, you had mentioned earlier, though, farming practices. So is it important uh, for, say, go back to our example of a farmer who has let some of his marginal farmland go for uh, habitat restoration? Uh, are there some things that the farmer can do in the land that he's farming, uh, good farming practices that would uh, prevent maybe any problems occurring uh, in in the surrounding habitat? Um, well, good good soil conservation practices are, are important for, for all farmers in uh, maintaining habitat. You don't want to um, over-farm an area, creating erosion and sediment runoff. That's just, you know, bad for water quality and, and other things like that. Um, as far as, you know, most most crop production ends up ends up feeding some of the wildlife um whether they want it to or not so there's not necessarily a bad thing going on there um but as far as you know good soil conservation would be one of the most important things a farmer can do all right let's go back to the phone lines here we start again in meridian dorothy's on the line good morning dorothy good morning i have a question about my puppy okay um friends the man found a stray on the road and um, gave him to me, and he looked like he was about five months old, and I've had him for two months, and my vet said he looks like he's about that age. He's, hello? You're still on. Go ahead. Okay. And um, the, he just chews everything. I mean, there isn't anything he wants to, and he shreds it. And he's an outside puppy, so that's okay, except he chews wires to the garage door and foundations to my poles and my gutters and everything so what do you suggest what breed is this is he a specific- it, 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 well it's a stray but it looks like a lab primarily <laughs> but i'm sure it's a mixed breed well i know that's what i was kind of pointing toward uh lab puppies yeah. are notorious for uh chewing eating uh digging up trees uh anything they can do that's right. He digs holes everywhere. I, I would suggest the possibility, and this may be double trouble, but you may want to get a companion for this puppy. I have an older dog. He's about 15 years well, old. Well, that's I don't not know how much longer he's got. Yeah, but and, he runs circles around that dog. And, and, and that, that dog, dog, dog would, that dog would. I'm sure he's thinking, I would rather this puppy not be here. <laughs> uh, but you have to try to take his attention off of that. It's very difficult to do. Uh, people who own labs will tell you that uh, they're the perfect dog, and they are after about two years of age as they start to settle down. But be aware that you've got to kind of, again, puppy-proof this area, and I don't know how to tell you exactly to do it. I would say that sometimes a companion the same age or close to the same age might help. All right, uh, Dorothy, thanks for your call. This is Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Let's stay on the phone lines here for a few minutes. Next, we've got uh, J.J. in Starkville. You're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, uh, my question has to deal with uh, snakes. Um, over the last two to three years, um, my air conditioner or heater would just run continually, no matter what you set it on. So when I call a technician, he goes out and checks the heat pump. A snake has gotten up in there and grounded itself out, uh, and it just has that circuit wide open. My question is, what can I do to prevent that from happening? Or is there anything I can do? It's a great question. Uh, uh, Stephen, you may have some, some 
uh, things to say about that. The main thing would be to try to either use some sort of wire or something around that to keep a snake from getting in there. Uh, uh, is it heat pump? You know, it's already got all of the wiring and all that stuff around it. Well, he's got a way to get in there. I see. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I think if you could somehow keep a, the snake from accessing it, that would be the, the safest bet. But as far as uh, keeping a snake from the area... About the only thing you can do is um, maybe try to reduce whatever his food source may be. You know, if you have a, if there's a um, mouse or mouse problem in the area, maybe a lot of frogs, something like that. That that's uh, keeping snakes around your house. If you could somehow get rid of those, it might keep the snakes away. But that'd be a guess. All right. Well, so I'm, I'm I live in the county. Uh, what do you suggest as far as uh, frogs? Because what I do in the yard, there are frogs and lizards and things like that running around all over the place. Keep your vegetation as low as you can around that. Uh, that would help some. And uh, that's a unique problem, and I don't know exactly how you're going to do it. But what kind of snake was it? Do you know? Uh, the one that uh, we called early enough, it was. I don't know what it was. It wasn't a rattlesnake. It was black, I guess, with uh, whitish yellow spots. <laughs> May have been a king snake. Yeah. I, okay. But they're there, just like Stephen said, they're there for a food source. And in that area, there's got to be plenty of food. There's a reason the snakes are hanging out there. But uh, good luck. I don't know how you can block block that out without uh, affecting your heat pump. All right. All right. JJ? Thanks for the call. Yeah, I think you agree. I would maybe do a, a real close inspection and see if there's any sort of opening or something because you're right. that, that the, the snake had to get in there some way, and so if there's natural kind of uh, wiring or whatever that protects the heat pump, uh, right. just maybe a, a close examination to see what little tiny hole or space uh, the snakes might be getting through. We need to take one final break this hour. When we get back, we've got some calls on the line, and we'll continue our conversation with our guest, Stephen Grushy, who is a wildlife biologist with the conservation group Wildlife Mississippi. We'll be back to wrap up Creature Comforts after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. I'm Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson. Our guest today is wildlife biologist with the conservation group Wildlife Mississippi. We're visiting with Stephen Grushy. Uh, so, Stephen, we talked about um, the uh, restoration of the of the of the habitat, the prairie land in the in the Black Belt Prairie region, and I would imagine uh, pollinators play a big role in in that. Um, yeah, pollinators is a, is an interesting thing that uh, kind of rolls in with the prairie restoration work. Um, it kind of coincides. There's some cost share programs for farmers that are doing some of these same practices as far as the native grasses. And um, pollinators are, are a big issue uh, these days in in the agriculture and, and conservation world. Um, there's been a tremendous decrease in the amount of, you know, honeybees and uh, other pollinators that are kind of necessary for, for um, helping plants produce, pollinate and produce food that, that we that we use. Um, so these pollinator programs involve planting a lot of these forbs and, and legumes in, 
in amongst these native grasses. And the goal there is to have something that's flowering throughout the entirety of the summer. So there's kind of three phases of the early summer, midsummer, and and fall. Uh, and it's kind of providing a food source and an attractant for these pollinators. Um, through some of these same conservation programs. Okay. Back to the phone lines we go. This time we're visiting with Milton in Pearl. Good morning. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, I have a question concerning a cat. I have a tabby cat, and uh, does a cat have hearing, uh, hearing, acute hearing, uh, or the hard to hear, uh, it seems like when I call him, he doesn't ha- uh, doesn't respond. <laughs> well, problem, or just ignoring. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's a that's a great point. Uh, I have a little sign up in the office that says basically that if cats could talk, they wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> but probably the cat is ignoring you. I would maybe try to call when you're feeding the cat. Feed it at se- separate times a day and see if it comes. But most cats have pretty acute hearing. I suspect they can hear a mouse rustling on the other end of the house if there was one. So I, I would say that their hearing is generally acute, and probably this cat is, for some reason, ignoring you at that point. All right, uh, Milton, thanks for the call. That, that's life with a cat. We when Cat owners got to get used to that, that occasionally, uh, I know if I ever need to get my cat's attention, all I need to do is go to the cupboard and get out his bag of treats and shake it, and he, you're right. No matter what part of the house he's in, he will definitely be able to hear that. Uh, let's stay on the phone lines. Next, we've got uh, Stephanie in uh, Tishomingo. Good morning. Go ahead, please. Morning. How are you? Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Go ahead. I have a question about rehabilitating a baby squirrel. And I've had her now for about four weeks, and she's doing really well. But I really want to know what's best for her in rehabilitation back into the wild. And how do I do that? Um. Well, that's that's not something I'm specifically familiar with on on rehabilitating a, a baby squirrel there, um, and I'm also not specifically sure on on um, you know that's a native wildlife species and it's uh it's basically not meant to be kept as as a house pet. I would say I think there might be some regulations against that, but I, I couldn't exactly speak well, to their specifics. Well, we found her. She didn't have, you know, she didn't have her eyes open. She did have fur, but it was, I think it was from somebody cutting a tree down next to us. And so there was nothing there to take right. care of her. This is a unique um, problem. Every every year, there are two seasons of squirrel, baby squirrels. They get blown out of a tree from a storm. Somebody cuts a tree and they're down. But uh, certainly it's, it's hard not to... Um, you know, take pity and raise a little squirrel. We have numerous squirrels that are either brought to us. We have one or two people that can uh, definitely take care of them. My point is probably you need to create a cage outside right. and have right. a, have the squirrel where it can see what's going on, start getting, uh, figure out what the squirrels are eating at that time, whether it's uh, pine nuts or uh, acorns or whatever, start trying to feed the... Not right now. I think you said it's only three weeks old. Well, she was about three weeks old okay. when we found okay. her, and now she's about she's four weeks later. She's right, eyes okay. Open. She's, moving around, she's moving around good. So as much as you can, uh, try to acclimate her to outside, and I would suggest releasing at some point. Uh, yeah, the only sure. real problem with that, and I'll say this, is that a lot of times the neighbors, the squirrels that are out there don't like a new squirrel. 
and they may oh. may attack her. But it's not a reason. And uh, Stephen was perfectly right. We don't need to keep squirrels as pets. Uh, right. Even though I have seen one that lived for 12 years in somebody's uh, possession. Uh, oh, we've had people ask before about that. And I think the answer was, if you're going to keep a squirrel, which we don't recommend, you do need to have a hunting and fishing license, a valid hunting and fishing license. Yeah, I don't really, you know, I didn't anticipate <laughs> right. finding her to begin with, but I don't want to keep her. You know, I just feel that that would be unfair. Right. Well, good luck Good luck to you, and I sure hope that uh, it works out well. All right, uh, Stephanie, thanks for the call. And I, th- I think there are a number of, of, of wildlife uh, rehabilitation uh, organizations or outfits or people that do that. So uh, I guess if in a situation like that where you come across a wildlife that you think is in need of rehabilitation, help or whatever, it might be uh, best to let the, the experts in because, again, uh, there's there's some it's it's not good for them. They they don't. They don't need to interact too much with humans if they're going to be out in the wild. So I think in that case, maybe uh, just to go ahead and uh, maybe call in the professionals and see if they can help in, in a situation like that. The museum can give you information on who to call and also your you know, local uh, uh, fisheries and wildlife uh, personnel can help uh, tell you what to do. So, Stephen, we've been talking about the, the Black Belt Prairie region, and you mentioned some of the uh, the species that are found there. We talked a little bit about the bobtail, uh, the bobwhite quail, the, the deer that are there. Uh, what are some of the other uh, uh, animals and creatures we would see there, and also maybe the overall health of that region in, uh, of the state? Uh, well, we actually were touching on pollinators earlier, and it uh, brought to mind one of the recent projects we had was with uh, Mississippi State University doing an entomolo- entomological study on one of our prairie remnants in Chickasaw County, they were actually looking for uh, something called the prairie mole cricket, which is, <laughs> as uh, strange as it may sound, it's a it's a cricket that lives underground, and it, it was thought to be extinct in the 80s. Um, and they found some some populations in Oklahoma and and some other areas in, in those other Midwestern prairies. And and uh, I guess at Mississippi State and, and us, we were thinking that uh, if there was going to be a place to find it where you know, it used to inhabit this region, uh, that one of these prairie remnants would be the place. And it's it's just, it's got a really unique behavior, like a, uh, kind of like a prairie chicken or, or a sharp-tailed grouse. It, it lives underground, it only comes out in the spring, and it builds this little lek, like this little funnel-shaped dirt mound, and it calls to the females. <laughs> and, um, and they come flying in, and they're, they're selective on which one makes the best song. Uh, and um, so anyway, there's, there's just a, a ton of interesting entomological um species some insects and and things like that in the prairie that are actually endemic to the prairie um so that that's a really unique thing there just the diversity of species um and the as far as speaking to the health of the region i mean there's there's just continuing work going on to to conserve and protect as much as we as we can of these prairie remnants which are some of the last kind of strongholds of, of the native native grass um communities and uh, just to push to try to improve that habitat and, and connect it and um, try to get some, some kind of mass, critical mass of habitat in the area that can really support wildlife species. Um, is there maybe a website or something if folks have heard about uh, Wildlife Mississippi, want to know more about the work that you all do? Uh, where could someone go to find more information? 
Uh, yeah, we have a, a website. It's wildlifemiss.org. Okay. And it talks a lot about some of the, the projects we've got going on and, and maybe how people can help or, or join Wildlife Mississippi. And you're, as we talked about, you're kind of working in the northeastern part of the state, but imagine projects going on in all parts of Mississippi. Absolutely. All right. That's going to wrap us up for today. Sorry we didn't get to all the calls. If you uh, have a question that you need to get answered, you could email the show animals at mpbonline.org. Creature Comforts is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio. Funding provided in part by Wildlife Mississippi, a statewide organization celebrating its 20th year of conserving Mississippi's lands, waters, and wildlife. And contributions from listeners like you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman, and our call screener today was Sharita Brent. So for Dr. Troy Major and our guest Stephen Grushy, I'm Kevin Farrell, inviting you to stay tuned up next at 10. It's MPB's Season Pass with Jay White and Sam Wells. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for another Creature Comforts. It's heard only on MPB Think Radio.